0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious
2: on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Thomas Jefferson raped. Thomas a Jefferson ran
1: a child slave operation. Alexander Hamilton cheated Alexander on. Alexander
2: Hamilton was blackmailed in, in a sex.
1: Exercised in the papers. Benjamin
2: Franklin was a dirty John old Adams man. John
1: Adams imprisoned his crills. John Hancock
2: was a schemer George and a
1: Washington smuggler. wore the teeth of the slaves.
2: You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore all things weird and bizarre in the natural world and the world past. I'm editor Leah Silverman, and today I'm joined by staff writer Marco Margaritoff to talk about some of the darkest elements of our otherwise revered founding fathers. Later on, we'll be joined by New York Times best-selling author Alexis Co. to discuss her biography of George Washington, You Never Forget Your First. But first, What makes a founding father? What makes a founding father a founding father? Depending on where you look, you'll see anywhere from seven to 18 founding fathers, but they were all involved in the unification of the 13 colonies, the fight for independence, and the formation of the government in some form or another. Some were involved in the Constitution, there are 56 signatories in all, or the Declaration of Independence, or both. Benjamin Franklin was actually the oldest signatory on both documents, and was 81 at the time of the writing of the Constitution. You've likely heard the legends about these men because they were unprecedented in our nation's history. They founded the nation, after all. They were essential in drafting the U.S. Constitution, declaring our independence, and sculpting a nation out of turmoil. But these men were men. They were human, and they existed in a time where both slavery and pistol dueling for bragging rights were acceptable behaviors. So naturally, there's a crass and uncomfortable dimension to each of them. Let's explore it.
1: Let's start with Thomas Jefferson. Everyone knows he was a slaveholder, but he wasn't just any slaveholder. The guy ran an operation and he raped a 14 year old child. His Monticello estate in Virginia was serious business. He employed up to 140 slaves at any one time, working in textiles, blacksmithing, nail making, farming, and more. He even put enslaved kids to work and withheld food rations if they didn't work hard enough. Though we claimed that all men were created free and equal, he certainly didn't live that way. It was 1787. Thomas Jefferson had been working in Paris as a United States envoy and minister to France when he was joined by his daughter Martha and numerous slaves, including her chambermaid, 14-year-old Sally Hemings. The year the United States Constitution passed into law, Jefferson not only raped but impregnated the 14-year-old. He had initially described her as, quote, quite a child before writing that she was, quote, handsome with long straight hair down her back and was, quote, decidedly good-looking. Hemmings was the daughter of Jefferson's own father-in-law, John Wales, who had raped his, quote, domestic servant, Betty Hemmings. She was also the half-sibling of Jefferson's late wife, Martha Wales Skelton Jefferson. After numerous rapes resulted in a pregnancy, Hemmings returned to America, where Jefferson's illegitimate child died in its infancy. Upon their return to his Monticello estate in Virginia, The unscrupulous abuser continued routinely raping the enslaved seamstress. She ultimately birthed six more children. The Thomas Jefferson Foundation Research Committee itself said Jefferson fathered a minimum of six of the seven children Hemings gave birth to. One of Hemings' own children, Madison, revealed that Jefferson fathered all seven. While Jefferson's white daughter, Martha, had always denied this, a 1998 DNA test proved her and her supporters wrong. Scholarly review of the data in 2010 finally laid all debate to rest and confirmed that Jefferson was, quote, most likely the father of the six offspring listed on Monticello's records.
2: If you feel the need to defend Jefferson here, apologize for his behavior or object to the notion that he, quote, raped Hemmings. Keep in mind that Hemmings was a child. She was his property and therefore she had no say in the matter.
1: Jefferson was also a famous frenemy of John Adams. The two started as political allies, but their mutual thirst for power turned them against one another. John Adams was the principal author of the oldest constitution ever written still used today, the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. He was a founding father and the first president to live in the White House, but unfortunately, he was also extremely thin-skinned and nearly authoritarian. Adams didn't take criticism well and despised those who voiced any, such as Congressman Matthew Lyon, who wrote Adams was, quote, swallowed up in a continual grasp for power, in an unbounded thirst for ridiculous pomp, foolish adulation, and selfish avarice. Adams signed the Alien and Sedition Acts in July 1798, which made it illegal to, quote, write, print, utter, or publish any false, scandalous, and malicious writing or writings, about the president or other officials of the executive branch. The argument for this distressingly broad law was national security, as the young country was teetering on war with France. The alien part of the law made it as easy as possible to deport immigrants and made it much harder for naturalized citizens to vote. As for the sedition part, its power was made no clearer than when Representative Lyon was accused of being, quote, a malicious and seditious person, and of a depraved mind and a wicked and diabolical disposition, as a result of his reasonable critique. He was fined $1,000, convicted of sedition, and sentenced to four months in prison. To Adam's chagrin, Lyne campaigned for re-election behind bars and won, with his supporters greeting him with a parade as a, quote, martyr to the cause of liberty and the rights of man upon his February 1799 release. Benjamin Franklin Bach, grandson of Franklin and Aurora newspaper editor, wasn't as lucky. He insulted the president as, quote, old, querulous, bald, blind, crippled, toothless Adams. After the First Lady urged her husband to take action, Bach was assaulted and his home was vandalized. His pregnant wife coincidentally received numerous death threats at the time. Ultimately, more than a dozen people were convicted under the Alien and Sedition Acts, Public protests organically grew, with James Madison voicing the imperative need to protect the press. In the end, Thomas Jefferson used the vehement opposition to his advantage during the 1800 presidential election and won. The Alien and Sedition Acts expired during Adams' term, with Jefferson pardoning all who were convicted under the law and most fines being refunded.
2: Also, even though he was pretty honest and open with his wife, Abigail, and they often corresponded about legal and government matters, he also wished that she was more like their timid daughter, quiet. Alexander Hamilton started his political career as an overly ambitious intellectual who actually, leading up to the American Revolution, was on the side of the British. It wasn't until he started living with a tactful Irishman named Hercules Mulligan, who was one of the first colonists to join the Sons of Liberty, that he became concerned with the matter of American independence. At the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, Hamilton was seeing his wife, who he basically described to friends as good-looking but not all that hot, and affable but not all that intelligent. He cheated on her halfway into their marriage in a scandal that went wildly public, because he published a 100-page confession on it. He did so really to thwart his mistress's attempts to blackmail him, but in doing so, he sullied his reputation and his wife's. Meanwhile, he and third vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr, had an insane rivalry going on. Hamilton went around telling everyone about how much he hated Burr and how awful Burr was for about 15 years, and then Burr got fed up and challenged Hamilton to an actual pistol duel. It ended badly. Hamilton was shot in the gut and killed, leaving his wife in tremendous debt with seven kids, one of which died in a similar duel just a year before, and all because he had a gigantic ego that he couldn't keep in his pants or his holster. Speaking of egos...
1: John Hancock was a wealthy merchant who inherited a huge sum in his 20s and had a flair for the luxurious. He funded virtually all protests in Boston leading up to American independence. He did this less because he was an ardent supporter of America's right to freedom and more because fighting British tax laws was financially beneficial to him. Hancock was so good at illegally importing goods that he became known as the Prince of Smugglers. To be fair, a whole hell of a lot of colonists were smugglers at the time. Hancock was just extraordinarily good at it. With increasingly tight British policies that hampered his illegal business, Hancock enthusiastically joined the call for revolution, but not because he wanted to see people liberated from British rule, but because he and his friend Samuel Adams were losing money. To combat legislation like the Stamp Act and the Townsend Act, Hancock bankrolled demonstrations and riled up protesters and crowds. After the British impounded his ship for smuggling in tea without paying taxes in 1768, a riot ensued. Hancock, meanwhile, had a rather brilliant legal mind at his side that cleared him of all charges namely, Sam Adams' cousin, John Adams. Two years later, however, John Hancock led the charge on the Boston Massacre, which actually saw people injured and killed. The Boston Massacre occurred when British soldiers fired into a crowd of unarmed colonial protesters. Five colonists were shot dead, and most of the soldiers were never convicted for their murders. Three years later, Hamilton and Samuel Adams incited the citizens of Boston to rail against British tax laws yet again, as British Parliament had introduced the Tea Act of 1773. This allowed the British East India Company to sell duty-free tea to the colonies, which greatly threatened Hancock's business. He and his peer Samuel Adams thus decided to continue instigating and funding protests that put ordinary citizens in danger. Though nobody died during the resultant Boston Tea Party, they may well have, with Hancock's decision-making unswayed by that risk.
2: George Washington is known for his wooden teeth, his inability to tell a lie, and his prowess in war. But the general wore dentures made of the teeth of his slaves, failed to free them when he said he would, and lost more battles than he won. Washington could only legally free half of the slaves on Mount Vernon. The rest belonged to his wife's family. He did free one immediately upon his death, a revolutionary war hero, and he promised the remaining 123 that they would be freed upon his death as well. However, his will stipulated that his wife could decide when they were free, or they would be free when she died too. So his wife Martha only freed the slaves when she felt they were actively plotting against her. Washington held different ideas about slavery throughout his life. He was largely dependent on his slaves economically, but he personally became uncomfortable with the practice during the Revolutionary War, though not uncomfortable enough to free them. Let's let Washington's policies speak for themselves. As the first president, abolition was nowhere near the bargaining table for him, and he didn't free a single slave while he was alive. Benjamin Franklin, the four-eyed inventor who was obsessed with electricity and once even tried to cook a turkey with an electrical charge, was also a total philanderer. While dating his future partner, he moved to London and broke up with her by letter so that he could traipse about with other women. When he came back and found her married, they still rekindled the romance and proceeded to live together as common-law spouses despite her marital status. Franklin also encouraged his wayward friends to have extramarital affairs with older women as opposed to younger ones, because, quote, There is no hazard of children, which irregularly produced may be attended with much inconvenience, close quote. He also suggested that if the whole old face thing was disturbing to them, then a bag could be put over their heads during sex. He also enjoyed taking air baths during which he sat completely naked in front of his open first floor window. And, oh yeah, he also owned slaves. So, Marco, on a scale of petty to downright evil, where do you think you would rank these founding fathers?
1: Um, It's strange to put all of these people on a scale because a lot of what they did was outright terrible, you know, from owning slaves to having them flogged to owning child slaves and raping children. Um, It's strange to quantify what's worse and what's uh, better. But I would say Thomas Jefferson is definitely at the top. He not only ran a plantation, but made all of his money through slave labor and used child slaves, took their food away. And yeah,
2: he had 600 slaves throughout the course of his life.
1: Right. Hundreds of children were born into bondage. He didn't care. He made his money off of them. Um, The nail factory he owned um, produced all of the the annual grocery bill for Monticello within two months. Um, And of course, he raped a child and not only once, but at least six or seven times. Um, So he's definitely the worst out of all of them here.
2: And who do you think is the best?
1: Um, Yeah. once again, it's weird to say this, but Benjamin Franklin, he was certainly a slave owner and that's horrible. But out of everyone here, I would say he does come off as a kooky inventor with a bunch of sexual kinks, you know, contrast contrast contrasted to somebody like Thomas Jefferson, who honestly seems like a horrible person.
2: Right. And Franklin did emancipate his slaves after 1785. And when he died, he included a provision in his will that his daughter and son-in-law had to free their slaves in order to get his inheritance, which was pretty considerable because Franklin was the richest man in America in 1785.
1: Yeah. So Franklin, alongside Hancock, I would say, would be on the other end of the spectrum um, that Jefferson sits in. Um, Hancock, I I don't have much respect for people who profiteer in a time of civil unrest and turmoil. But compared to most others here, he just seems like a relatable anti-hero. He was just taking advantage of his time and was biting his thumb at British authority. He was a smuggler. Um, You know, if you saw this in an adventure movie or something, you'd root for this guy. Right. Right. Again, I keep going back to Jefferson. Compared to Thomas Jefferson, Hancock just seemed like a pretty okay person.
2: And also, um, Hancock's interesting because we would say that he's towards the bottom of the list, and he was the only one who really did anything illegal. He was operating outside of the law, you know, smuggling, tax evasion. And the men who were the worst, you know, Thomas Jefferson, was operating within the law. It just so happened that the law at that time— Allowed slavery and was...
1: Yeah, the law protected some of the worst behavior imaginable, while those who operated outside of it um, are sort of relatable at this point.
2: So Hancock actually also did have slaves. Oh, Um, Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's going to be kind of hard to find a white man in this time period who didn't have slaves unless they themselves had no money. Um, So prior to the Revolutionary War, he had slaves. But then after the war, it seems like this was a sentiment along a lot of men for a lot of men in this time um, to change their mind about slavery after the Revolutionary War, because so many slaves fought alongside them against the British, um, which, you know, showed them that they were real goddamn people and bled when you poked them and whatnot. Right. So he changed his mind after that. And he actually did try to push abolition as a part of the Constitution.
1: Hmm. Um, I would say after Jefferson, I would put John Adams in there. Um, mm-hmm. he reminds me of my own personal <laughs> political awakening when I, uh, railed against people like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, um, who were, you know, just the, um, criticizing the press and, um, operating shadily and.
2: Overreaching, you know, o- using his power to to prevent people from their freedom, their right to freedom of speech.
1: Right. And labeling people as potential enemy combatants. If they say something you don't like, obviously this is reminiscent of what's happening right now with Donald Trump, you know, um, threatening the press and journalists from just Mm -hmm. telling it like it is and informing the public of what the powers that be are doing. John Adams, A few weeks ago, I I honestly would have thought John Adams was one of the more respectable founding fathers, but he seems like a horrible person who should have no power at all to me now.
2: Also, didn't he have like a weird title that he wanted people to refer to him as, as the president?
1: Um, I believe that while he was vice president, he cynically, um, suggested calling, the president who I believe was George Washington, the electoral
2: um, highness or something,
1: his high majesty and protector of Liberty and the people, oh something God. like that. Um, protector yeah, of
2: Liberty and yet wants people to keep their mouths shut if they're going to criticize him. Didn't John Adams want us to celebrate the 4th of July on July on 8th 2nd. or something? Yeah. And then yeah. he wanted it celebrated on the second and then, um, because everyone voted against him, he was so petulant and petty. He was like, I'm never going to celebrate on the 4th of July. And he didn't.
1: (laughs) I mean, honestly, he has a point. It was, it was signed on the second or whatever, right? It was like, that should have been the date.
2: I think so. We could look it up real quick, but then he died on the 4th, right? (laughs) Then he died on the 4th of July. And so did Thomas Jefferson. They died together. Perfect. I know kind of a beautiful page in history.
1: So, um, I would say Thomas Jefferson and John Adams out of all the ones we spoke about, they seem to be the worst while Alexander Hamilton was, he seems like a childish and undisciplined pride, petulant. petulant, yeah. He seems like a child who, um, not only did he cheat on his wife, but he, he basically published he wrote a h- more than 100 pages right. about the whole thing. So what's when,
2: interesting is that 100-page pamphlet is about a fling that lasted, like, not even a summer. Like, how arrogant do you have to be to think that your sexual prowess of, like, a very short fling re- requires a full 100 pages to describe it? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and then to leave your your wife with seven children um, to, to raise them all and— you die because you couldn't say no to a duel because you were too prideful to decline.
2: Also, he pretty much said that he fell into this affair because he couldn't say no to this woman. So it's called the Maria Reynolds affair. Um, Mm -hmm. That was the woman he was involved with, the Reynolds affair, the Reynolds scandal. And it's considered the first political sex scandal um, in U.S. history This woman, Maria Reynolds, was a woman in danger, at least as far as we know. She approached Hamilton and asked him for financial assistance. He obliged. He went to check on her later. And quote, this is from Hamilton, as he wrote in his hundred page pamphlet. Some conversation ensued from which it was quickly apparent that other than pecuniary consolation would be acceptable. They engaged in a sexual relationship. Her husband returned, found out about the sexual relationship, and decided that they would use it to blackmail Hamilton. And they blackmailed him out of a third of his salary, which was um, about $25,000 in today's standard.
1: Wow. I wonder how we would think about Bill Clinton if he had said, yes, I did sleep with that woman and, you know, wrote like a (laughs) hundred page article Based on who's
2: in the office right now, I have a feeling if he had just come right out and said that he did it, people would probably be cheering him on.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Um, So what about George Washington? We really didn't cover him in this discussion here. Um, He said he would free his slaves. He didn't. Only one was freed. I know there was a bunch of legalese that got in the way. At least that was his rationalization. But
2: I say this like not to excuse his behavior, but to explain that he was really not exceptional. George Washington was just a man of his time. He was not a forward thinker. He was not particularly empathetic. You know what I mean? If he, he was, was just these a rich things, white
1: Virginian landowner, right,
2: if he was those things, if he was an exceptional person, he maybe would have found a way to emancipate his slaves while he was alive. He would have pushed for abolition while he was the first president of the nation but the yeah. fact that he didn't just shows that he was a common dude.
1: Yeah. Just a basic uh, rich white politician, I suppose.
2: Also probably really preoccupied with his own health. Um, according to the book, uh, You Never Forget Your First, which we talk about uh, after this with author Alexis Coe, he was sick sick a lot like near death almost all the time which is why he pretty much didn't have teeth near the end of his life and oh, he did Jesus. pay slaves for his teeth he just didn't pay them nearly as much as you would pay like a white person for their teeth during that time
1: strange that they thought um, black people were inferior yet the teeth are good enough to you know put in your mouth and live with Um, okay. So I guess my rankings are Thomas Jefferson is the worst. John Adams, terrible guy, should never have had any power. (laughs) And, um, on the other end of the spectrum, I'm going to keep Ben Franklin up there. Um, John Hancock, second best. And everyone else is sort of in the middle. Alexander Hamilton, I have no, no real respect for.
2: No, not a man you'd want to meet at a party either. We spoke with historian Alexis Coe, the only woman historian to publish a biography of George Washington in the last 100 years about the lack of diversity in the study of the first president of the United States. So, yeah, I'll just dive right in. What we're looking for is uh, some of the little known histories of our founding fathers and in particular those histories that have been intentionally avoided whether because they revealed a part of that figure that wasn't representative of American values or was just sketchy. So you focus on Washington and particularly on how male historians have chosen to interpret his character. So um, in what ways have male historians most misrepresented Washington? And can you talk about some patterns or fake facts most commonly used by these historians? Washington studies have been completely
0: dominated by men in a way that I have never seen in any other presidential studies. Usually there are half a dozen women to, you know, 50 men. But with Washington studies, it's literally hundreds of men to one. In the last hundred years, I've been the only woman historian um, and then the third woman to write a biography. And during that time, hundreds of men have written them. And not just men, but white men. And as we know, a lack of diversity means a lack of opinion and that, you know, everyone seems to sort of see the same thing because they all come from the same experiences. So one of the things they're very interested in is, of course, you know, anything to do with military battles or uh, masculinity. they're less interested in is things that fall outside of that, which is most of Washington's experience during the war, because, you know, we don't see many generals fighting in the field. They're pretty much writing letters and tents and doing a lot of of things that we don't learn until later, like spying and um, propaganda. But one of the things that really struck me was um, how hard they went after women in Washington's life, how critical they were of them, whether it was based on reality or not, and how easy they went on Washington when it came to slavery. Those things really stuck out to me.
2: And so why do you think teachers perhaps have perpetuated these misfacts as well? It's, it's not like they couldn't maybe do their own research, or do you think the research was intentionally hidden in some way? Um, and maybe in answering this, you could tell me too a little bit about how you did your research and how you came across these facts that have been buried over time?
0: Well, I think a part of the problem was the lack of diversity. If you only have one kind of Washington book, you can suspect it's it's being written a certain way, but you don't necessarily know. Um, and so I've heard a tremendous amount from university and high school you know, teachers and professors who are very excited to um, introduce this and have always, you know, suspected something's going on because of co- of course there's hagiography when it comes to like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and, um, you know, other founders, but nothing like Washington. A part of it is that this stuff hasn't been, you know, it was only recently digitized. So anyone can go to Founders Online, which is through Library of Congress, and they've uploaded all the founders, you know, the majority of the founders' letters, and they've annotated it. They've done so much work for you. But, you know, that's a relatively recent thing. We also have to remember that women and people of color were completely excluded from history departments until the 60s and 70s, and when they finally got in there, they had to make up for everyone who had been excluded as well Mm -hmm. within history texts. And so they started with women and people of color. And what I'm saying is, as usual, these groups have to do double duty. They need to not only continue to reinsert these people and, and uh, you know or correct the narrative, but they also have to check men's work. So if there has been um, an area of study that's just been dominated by white men, I'm afraid they have to do that too. Um, and so I am the first woman, but I think that there are a lot coming after me and certainly the attention that the book got will make it easier for people. I already know, I've, I've looked at it at least five more Washington proposals and they're incredible. So I think everyone works, you know, history is a field in which you build off other people's work. There's a lot to go through. It's just impossible. You know, Washington within a year wrote thousands of letters because he had, you know, four secretaries helping him out. And so you really do need to build on other people's work. And so my work will, um, you know, allow someone else to go go a bit further with it. So it's a really exciting time, but it also seems like how did this, go this far you know how did we get here um and I I do think there is a bit of a cabal right I think that male historians um out of laziness or whatever just did not question each other when it came to um things that didn't interest them which are you know outside of military and and studies of masculinity
2: and also it was all about building a heritage for America based on values that they wanted to perpetuate manliness, liberation. And so they couldn't, I guess, if they wanted to keep that image, they couldn't reveal these parts about Washington that were counter to that. So you mentioned, yeah. sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I think that's true. I think that everyone was really protective around him in a way that um, I don't even see with Thomas Jefferson. And I think that's because with Jefferson, you have his beautiful words, right? You have something that can really like attract you to him, and, and then you struggle with what a hypocrite he was um but with washington he doesn't necessarily have those other wow factors mm-hmm. <laughs> i think as as one would call them and so you know people are nervous about cancel culture and one of the things i've repeatedly said is you know one it's our job as historians to tell our readers everything i personally believe that my readers can handle everything mm-hmm. and i think it's it's just completely absurd to me that that one would even try to, um, then it's hagiography, then it's something completely different, but it's not history. That's our job is just to present you with the fact. And I think also, if, if we do that, we would have a lot easier time understanding why our country looks the way it does today. And certainly I say today, um, I think we're on, you know, day eight of Black Lives Matter protests during you know quarantine. Uh, New York is just starting to open back up but you know people when we're still arguing about whether George Washington had slaves or you know someone at, at Mount Vernon when I give a talk you know asked me, well didn't he treat them well, didn't he feed them and give mm-hmm. them clothes? you know if we're still answering those basic questions, we're
2: screwed. we're never going to progress. And it's just erasure, right? Like we're just ignoring an entire part of who he was in that time period. Could you maybe like speak more about uh, the truth about his slave ownership and some facts that have been misrepresented about him that he never told a lie?
0: Mm hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's if you think about it, I don't know anyone who's won a war who hasn't told a lie. It would be impossible. You'd be very bad at your job. Um, Washington is also, you know, a celebrated spymaster. So we, we, you know, instinctively know that he had to have told some lies. <laughs> but we want him to be perfect, right? And the problem is, by making him perfect, people have made him too perfect to be real. You know, he's too marble. But he obviously told a lie. That story was completely made up, and we know the person who did it. His name was Parson. We. He was an itinerant minister. He had a great name and a terrible relationship with the truth, but he was first to market. And anyone who's first to market with a book usually sets the tone. You know, when it comes to slavery, people love to say that Washington struggled um, for decades and that, you know, he, he really like he, he called it, you know, um, a source of regret, the the institution of slavery. Meanwhile, he's still acquiring enslaved people and he's right. still you know if, if, if the thing is there is this in in the rush to defend Washington, we have obscured some some basic facts about him. One, if Washington wanted to emancipate his slaves, he could have. He would have the money to do so because you had to pay, um, you know, Virginia to do so. And then you had to make sure if they had been injured in your care, which happened often um, because we are talking about slavery here in Virginia, um, you had to pay for the rest of their lives, for their food and housing and clothing because the state of Virginia didn't want to. Washington um, could have done so, but he didn't want to, because like most Virginians, he was land rich and cash poor. He didn't want to sell the land. And it's not like he was trying to leave his children something when he died. He had no heirs. Um, He didn't have any biological children. But, you know, in, in Lafayette, famous from Hamilton, Lafayette, Um, wrote him throughout this time period and said, you know, how about we do it this way? Or what if I go half in with you on some property? And then we start what is essentially a tenant farming business for your enslaved population. So you don't actually have to emancipate them. You don't have to deal with that. But you basically just leave them alone. And it's like an experiment. Um, And and throughout this time period, he's like, oh, you're so sweet. Let's talk about it later. Um, But when he's responding officially to this, he's writing that he hopes that the government will Will make slavery um, will eventually outlaw, it, but but at a pace that is imperceptible. It's so gradual that it's imperceptible, um, which of course does nobody any favors, and is a great way to just sort of you know say I don't want anything to do with it. The big story that historians have loved to tell about Washington is that he emancipated his slaves when he died, but that's not true. He emancipated one man outright who had been by his side during the revolution. Um, and then the rest he gave to Martha. Um, they would either be of her use during her, the rest of her lifetime, right, so she could still benefit from them financially, or um, at her discretion. I'm not sure Martha knew about this plan, by the way. He wrote this will right before he died, and he had her bring him two on his deathbed, and he'd burn the other one. And, and that, that will was published, And so, of course, the enslaved population, hundreds of people, knew that the only thing standing between them and and emancipation was Martha. And she worried about her life. We know this from Abigail Adams' letters. And so she emancipated them. But that's that's conditional right she Mm -hmm. could have lived another 15 years and those people would not have been free so you cannot say that he freed people outright and you can't say hey this wasn't legacy building because he had that will distributed the day after he died so that they knew about it but everyone in the world knew about it too and that's like it doesn't mean that we should not study him I am one who doesn't believe that we know Washington's name because he's a role model who we should all seek to um, emulate. We know him because he's historically significant. The rest is all a personal choice.
2: Mm -hmm. And what do you think that hesitation from him was to try and emancipate them or even just have them working for him, as Lafayette had suggested? Was it just not caring or he didn't want to have to be controversial in any way? Um,
0: you know, this is a, he inherited close to a dozen slaves when he was ten years old. This is someone who um, was basically a lifelong slave owner. Washington had grown up uh, with a mother who separated her slaves when she died in her will, something that's sort of unheard of when you when you consider yourself a good slave owner. Um, Washington personally assaulted his enslaved population. When someone counters with, "Oh well, he he treated them well in this way or that way," he allowed them to get married. What does marriage yield? Children. What are children when you own them? More property, more wealth. Um, I think that a big part of it is that it was a transaction to him and that he Mm -hmm. didn't believe that um, black people were equal to white people. He thought that there were exceptions, just like we know to be true throughout, you know, history of anyone. Um, when you read their their letters and and they have um, they're in the south, and they they tend to have done things in this manner, it's not uncommon to see, oh, they have a token um, person, but but for the most part, he viewed black people as uh, ungrateful, um, not hard workers. And he, in fact said at one point, they don't you know, they just don't take any pride in their work. That's because you're not paying them, man, right. and you're raping <laughs> and beating them at will. So it's a real disconnect. I don't think that he was one of these. Um, you know, I think it's sort of a waste of time to even to even analyze. You know, did he hate black right. people? Did he like? It's irrelevant. We know what he did. And that's what we should judge him on. Um, And when I say judge, I mean, you know, we can't say, oh, well, I think what was in his heart was this. I mean, we just look at his actions and determine, hey, this guy was pretty down with slavery.
2: Mm -hmm. Can you describe um, any of the friendships between the founding fathers, if there were any, or were there any frenemies going on? Yeah, I have a chart
0: in the book called Frenemies, and the thing that politicians love to do is present the founding class as if it's a monolith, and they all agreed on everything, and they were the best of friends, and they not only understood their time period perfectly, but also our own and how we should live now, hundreds of years into the future. Um, you know, they wouldn't even understand an elevator, let alone <laughs> the complicated, um, you know, social dynamics that… that either help our country move forward or or not at all as we're seeing they they started out george washington was by far the most popular and and a big part of that is he kept his opinions to himself for the most part it was very hard to read and he also just had presence and he was an athlete he's basically the most popular kid in school um But that was when he went into office. And I have this chart at the beginning of the presidency section. The book is, um, you never forget, your first is broken up into three parts. His early life, the revolution, and then the presidency. Um, And at the beginning of the presidency, it's really important to me that everyone understands that they weren't a monolith. Um, They entered the, you know, this time, this first presidency. So we all shared in this at the time, loving and revering Washington. I have quotes from Adams and Jefferson and Monroe and Madison and Thomas Paine saying, you're the greatest man who's ever lived. And then I have the quotes when he left office, which are savage. They (laughs) all had something negative to say about him. And then I have their relationship status. And he was really only friends with one when he left. And that's tremendous. You know, if you think about it, he wasn't on speaking terms with Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, any of those guys. Um, And Thomas Paine wrote this really scathing open letter in which he said that we would all find Washington out to be a fraud. So, um, you know, even even for a man who is considered the greatest man in the world during his lifetime, Um, got it pretty hard from the press and his, uh, you know, fellow founders.
2: So where do you think, uh, how, or where, when, or how do you think that changed that reputation changed from his time with the founding fathers to now where he's being reevaluated even? Jefferson said that nothing ever
0: stuck to Washington, that he would always emerge as the victor and everyone else would get um, blamed for his faults. And maybe that's true. But I do think, um, you know, while Washington maybe didn't get as much attention for owning slaves as Jefferson has, um, you know, in the last, let's say, decade, um, I just don't think that he's moved anyone in the same way. You know, Washington's studies are are not popular, they're not in vogue, they're basically for people who study honor or, um, you know, just nothing that's that, you know, doesn't usually make the bestseller list, for example, unless it's Ron Chernow or someone who's writing dad history, you know, that's what I call, um, the books that are sold on Father's Day, and they're these huge tomes, it's a size matters crowd, um, you know, I don't really think people read those books. I, I think that he suffered, um, I think his reputation has suffered as a result of, of the lack of honesty because people just don't have anything to hold on to. Mm-hmm. If you're upset with someone, it's still some sort of relationship. But, you know, um, Richard Brookheiser, a conservative historian who I disagree with on almost everything, I love this quote that he has where he says that Washington is in our pockets but not our hearts. And I don't know if he should be in our hearts. I disagree with him there, but I like the mm-hmm. quote, and I think it's true. We can't forget him. He's everywhere. He's on our money. He's on, you know, tons of schools, the names, the, the capital of the United States is called Washington after him. Um, so he's not going anywhere. But we need to actually know him. And to know him, we need to present him fully.
2: This laundry list of bad behavior isn't meant to be taken as a reductionist survey of the founding fathers, but it is certainly to remind us that the original minds behind our government were flawed. Is it any wonder then why we see such cracks in our leadership today? If we keep pretending that the men who built our nation were perfect, we might keep believing the myth that our government is too, and remain complacent in the face of corruption. We have the capacity to hold both good and bad estimations of our leaders in our minds, and we ought to. If we don't, we run the risk of deifying our leaders to a point where we can no longer expect them or our nation to evolve and grow.
1: Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered Podcast and keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring.